This week, Pontifax recommends Reconsider. Reconsider covers timely and timeless social and political issues for liberal democracies with a nonpartisan approach that helps listeners question their own beliefs. Hosts Xander and Eric break down and dissect the partisan storytelling, bring facts to bear, and help you make up your own mind. Plus, you'll learn how to better think for yourself as you listen. Be prepared to be challenged and to learn and laugh along the way. Reconsider where all great podcasts are found. Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 98, Pope Leo III. The third of the Leos. But not great. Well, he's not a great, no, that's that's true. But, I mean, he is definitely going to be a great story, so this one's going to be fun. And remember last week when I said that Pope Adrian had the longest Liber Pontificalis entry to date? Oh, yes. That didn't last long at all, because now he's unseated, because Pope Leo III has the longest one in all of the Liber Pontificalis editions, Period, bar none, he is the LP champion at 51 pages. That's so many. Unfortunately, this doesn't mean by a long shot that it's the most useful, because it actually misses out on a lot of his papacy. So it's the longest, but it's also incredibly unthorough. We'll cover that as we go. Pope Leo was born in the countryside just south of Rome to Father Atipius, or Aztipius, depending on the source, and Mother Elizabeth. And it's interesting that we have both parents' names because Leo was not a member of the Roman nobility, and that's actually fairly important about him. But almost always when we've had a mother's name, it's because they were of noble status. Weird. Maybe he wrote them down? I don't know. It's entirely possible. We do know that they lived for a bit. You know, maybe there is an extra record of them, but he was not a member of the nobility. Also, the Liber Pontificalis suggests that he was ethnically Greek or Arabic. He grew up in Rome and entered the church, where he worked as both a treasurer and a vestiarius, which is the keeper of the wardrobe, before he eventually became the cardinal priest of the Basilica of Santa Susanna. He is described in the Liber Pontificalis very positively as chaste, eloquent, resolute and mild, slow to anger but quick to pity, a talented preacher, and a frequent almsgiver, as per usual. And when Pope Adrian died on Christmas Day of 795, the clergy convened the next day and swiftly held an election after the burial of Hadrian. This was presumably to ensure that the Roman clergy were able to hold their vote without any positive or negative outside influence or interference. Franks, Lombards, that situation. And Leo was elected unanimously, and as quickly as the election had come, so did the consecration, and he was officially consecrated as Pope the very next day. Ooh. Yeah, very quickly. <laughs> it's nice to see how fast things happen when you're not waiting for confirmation. When you don't have to wait for somebody to tell you yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's quite nice. It's quite convenient. And the first thing he did, unsurprisingly, once he was Pope, was to write to Charlemagne to inform him of the election. 
Because Charles is in charge. Charles loves to be in charge. And our new Pope Leo was keen to continue the incredible amity that the Pope had enjoyed with the Franks. And as a gesture of goodwill and an acknowledgement of the Franks as the protectors of the papal realm, Leo sent Charlemagne the keys to the confessio slash tomb of St. Peter and a standard of Rome. Are those the circular friends? <laughs> the circular friends! Yes, there's no actual clarification of whether these are the actual straight-up keys, the original OG circular friends, if you will, but more likely a symbolic set, kind of like receiving the key to a city. Oh, big giant copies. The manufactured circular friends. And according to historian Horace K. Mann, this is reflective of a monastic tradition where religious houses would send their banners to supporters and protectors and patrons. So the larger church is taking on this very monastic habit. And Charlemagne responded by sending the Pope a substantial amount of treasure from his last military victory against the Avars. Thanks. Here's some stuff I stole. Super, super lots of treasure that he stole. And this has the immediate benefit of increasing the wealth of the church in Rome, which would allow Leo to significantly increase charitable efforts throughout the city. Stolen from the Avars, but definitely, definitely benefiting the people of Rome. I think it's illegal to steal church. <laughs> it's Charles in charge, and he's just defeat them. I think that's a commandment. <laughs> you don't don't participate in stolen goods at all. And here's the church doing it. But you know what Charlemagne is saying to that? I am a Frenchman. <laughs> Spoils of war. <laughs> yeah, so it's great. It's great for Rome. But it's not great. Because the gesture of sending the keys of St. Peter's to Charlemagne did not sit well with the Roman nobility who still held some suspicion of Charlemagne's ambitions, and opposed any action that suggested that Rome was under the protection of any outside influence. Oh, they don't trust Charles. And sending the city standard seemed to represent the papal states as a protectorate, and protection suggests submission, and the people of Rome don't want to be submitted to or subject to anyone or anything. But this was not their only motive at the time to be put off of Leo. After the last handful of popes who had all come from the elite, the Roman nobility had gotten quite comfortable having a pope who was one of them. Surprise, oh, surprise. Oh, boy. Yeah. Elitism. It's real. Perhaps they felt like having a non-noble as pope diminished the prestige which had recently been won to the papacy. Or perhaps it was purely based on securing their own advantage. Either way, they absolutely do not like it, and this was felt the most keenly by the late Pope Hadrian's nephews, Pascalis and Compulus, who served as the current Primacerius and Cecilarius. The roles of Chris and Serge. Perhaps there was a plan, maybe, to keep the papacy in the family, and that hadn't happened? So they wanted Leo gone. And so they devised a plan to make him unfit for the papacy in a way that we've seen a lot of quite recently. 
Blinding. Yes, mutilation. <laughs> That's their favorite. It's their thing, right? On April 25th of 799, while Leo was performing the annual Procession of the Greater Litanies by the Flaminian Gate, he was beset upon by armed men who cut out his eyes and tongue. Oh my god. Imagine if that happened today. People would be so mad. They would be so mad. The Pope was thrown to the ground and knocked unconscious and then dragged and imprisoned in the monastery of St. Erasmus. I cannot not quote from the Liber Pontificalis here. Without mercy, they cut his clothes off him and attempted to cruelly pluck out his eyes and totally blind him. They cut off his tongue and left him, or so they thought, blind and dumb in the middle of the streets. But afterwards, like really impious heathens, they dragged him to the confessio in that monastery's church, and in front of the venerable altar itself, again for the second time, they cruelly gouged his eyes and tongue yet further. They didn't need to do that again. They couldn't... No, you don't need to double do that. They beat him with clubs and mangled him with various injuries and left him half dead and drenched in blood in front of the altar. I'm so mad at these people. I know, it's horrible. And while the Pope languished, dying... Languished like he just, he flopped on a couch like, I'm so tired. <laughs> he's in agony, he's dying, he's covered in blood, his eyes and tongues are gone, he's, he's not gonna make it. And his attackers pronounce his deposition. However, while locked in the monastery, Pope Leo was subject to a miracle. Miracles. Overnight, the Pope underwent a full and unexplained recovery of both his eyes and tongue. Okay. Quote, God acted and St. Peter the Apostle's prayers interceded, and it happened when the Pope had been left by his butchers in prison at St. Erasmus's monastery that he recovered his sight and his tongue was restored to him so he could speak. Um, I suppose that that's why they claimed that they double-dipped. Ooh, they tried to make sure. Double sure. And it still didn't stick as it happens. It still got better. So fortunately, his healed eyes, tongue, and the rest of him was saved by the Missi Dominici, which are the official envoys of Charlemagne, who helped him escape the monastery and took him out of the city to Spoleto, and then to Paderborn, where Charlemagne and his army were camped. I bet Charles is like, what the f***? <laughs> yes. This meeting of Charlemagne and Leo is recounted in the famous Carolingian epic poem, Carolus Magnus et Leo Papa. And this poem about Charlemagne spanned four books, but only the third containing this meeting of the Pope and the King is actually preserved. Hence the name, the King Charles and the Pope Leo. And because we are very fortunate to have very generous friends of the show, our friend Rudger Kramer has provided us with some snippets of some English translations, because as far as we know, the whole thing has never been fully translated into English. And so I'm thinking of making that a bonus episode in the future. Ooh. When the Pope's attackers learned that he was in Paderborn with Charlemagne, instead of imprisoned and dying in the monastery, 
they sent missives to the Frankish king, accusing Leo of perjury, adultery, and simony as justification for their attack and subsequent deposition. They realized uh, they had to come up with something really good to back them up, so they went mortal sins. Interesting. But Charlemagne refused to accept the deposition and had Pope Leo escorted back to Rome under the protection of Frankish forces and also sent Frankish officials along as well to conduct an investigation into the charges. He's trying to make it look like he's not doing it entirely by force. Look, they're going to investigate, but um, we're going to protect him so you don't try to triple blind and gouge this man. Triple blind. Leo arrived back in Rome in the fall of 800, where the Liber Pontificalis suggests that he was, quote, welcome back as if he were the apostle himself. Oh, that's lies. He was unanimously elected at the time. It's just the nobility that have a problem with him. So he's brought safely back to St. Peter's, where he celebrated mass and administered communion to the crowds. Then Charlemagne actually comes and arrives in Rome in November, and the next month, a council was convened to resolve this issue of the Pope and his deposers. The council was called and presided over by Charlemagne, and note that presided by Charlemagne, not the Pope, from December 1st to 23rd, and was attended by Leo, his accusers, and various Roman and Frankish nobles and clerics. At the council, Leo's accusers laid out their claim. What claim do they have? Well, adultery, simony, perjury. Those are their claims. Oh, those are just made up. Yes, they are made up. So then they had clerics who issued defenses for the Pope, including Alcuin, who was Charlemagne's advisor, who wrote a very, very persuasive letter in defense of the Pope. But in the end... Charlemagne invoked a precedent going back to the Third Synod in the papacy of Pope Symmachus and the resulting Symmachan forgeries that, and you may remember this, you may not, but quod prima sedis non judicator aquoquam, which means that no one can judge the Pope as the apostolic successor of Peter. Right? Remember uh, when yes. he was, when we had that very violent anti-papacy and it was just decided, look, the Pope cannot be judged can't do it. No, you cannot do it. It cannot happen. Historian Leopold Wallach provides the declaration in his article, The Roman Synod of December 800 and the Alleged Trial of Leo III, A Theory and Historical Facts. Quote, We do not dare to judge the apostolic see, which is the head of all the churches of God, for all of us are judged by the apostolic see and its vicar. However, the see is judged by nobody as it is the custom. But as the highest pontiff will have decided, we shall obey canonically. For all intents and purposes, the council determined that only Leo could be his own judge in this matter. Interesting. Which is very convenient, right? Yeah. Well, and I'm sure he's not going to be like, yeah, go to my eyes out. This is what he does quite well, because according to most of the sources, he does not simply just say, no, it's all fine, dismiss everything, right? He doesn't just wipe it all off. Instead, he takes an oath of purgation to profess his innocence. And this becomes a thing we're going to see. So let's talk about this, this oath of purgation. This is a milder form of purgation, the other form being trial by ordeal. 
It's essentially a solemn oath of innocence on pain of God's judgment in the presence of witnesses who will testify their trust in you. It's that God will strike me down. Yes, it's exactly that. (laughs) One article I read on the Daily Medieval indicates that there must be a minimum of 12 trusted witnesses, likely in reference to the apostles. And they provide us in this article with the current oath of canonical purgation as it is in ecclesiastical use today, because this is still a thing. Do you feel safe reading this? Yes, I'm going to read it. Let's do it. I, blank, now under process before the session of the congregation of C for the sin of blank alleged to have been committed by me for ending said processes and giving satisfaction to all, do declare before God and this session that I am innocent and free of the said sin of charged against me. And I hereby call the great God, the judge and avenger of all falsehood, to be witness and judge against me in this matter if I be guilty. And if I do by taking this blessed name in my mouth and swearing by him who is the searcher of the heart and that in sincerity, according to all the truth of the matter and by my own innocence, I shall answer at the great day of judgment, when I stand before him to answer for all that I have done in the flesh, and as I would partake of his glory in heaven, after this life is at an end. Boom. So if you swear by that, it is like, God, strike me down if I am lying. This is not the exact oath that Leo would have used, as the Liber Pontificalis quotes it as only, I follow the precedents set by my predecessors and pontiffs, and I am ready to clear myself of these false incriminations they have inflamed against me. This gives the idea. It's a very solemn, solemn thing. And for a much deeper textual analysis of the oath, I highly recommend Howard Adelson and Robert Baker's article, The Oath of Purgation of Pope Leo III in 800, because... <laughs> I used that a lot. It was very, very good. Leo's oath was accepted by the council and Charlemagne, and Leo's attackers and accusers were either exiled or sent to Francia as prisoners, and Leo was restored as pope. Bartolomeo Platina indicates that Charlemagne was prepared to issue a sentence of death on the attackers, but the, quote, The Pope, who was in all clemency, obtained a pardon of their lives, and they were only banished into France. And this is a fairly important moment, because Leo's oath sets a significant precedent, and essentially establishes a canonical legitimacy for oaths of purgation. Before this moment, it had been maybe occasionally utilized, but not ever in a formal trial setting. The only thing we have close to this prior is Pope Pelagius, episode 62, when he made an oath upon the cross that he had had no hand in Vigilius's death to clear any suspicions. But even then, that had not been because of actual formal charges. But this is an unusually complex scenario, and it also requires us to consider where exactly this fits in to the scope of papal power. On one hand, the Pope needed Charlemagne to come and hold a council, which Charlemagne presided over, not the Pope. But then we have the council judging that only the Pope could judge himself, which defends papal primacy, but again, is in the process making a a judgment of the Pope. 
something to consider when we get to Papatomephalium. But just in case it wasn't clear that the power of the papacy at this point was directly linked to the power of the Frankish king, two days after this council finished, on Christmas Day of 800, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne as the Imperator Romanum, or Holy Roman Emperor, at Mass in St. Peter's. Mm, We got the Holy Roman Emperor here. This is where it starts. We're going to quote from the Liber Pontificalis version first. Then with his own hands, the venerable, bountiful pontiff crowned him with a precious crown, and all the faithful Romans, seeing how much he defended and how greatly he loved the Holy Roman Church and its vicar, at God's bidding and at that of St. Peter, key bearer of the kingdom of heaven, cried aloud with one accord, to Charles, pious Augustus, crowned by God, great and pacific emperor, life and victory. Three times this was said in front of St. Peter's sacred confessio, and with the invocation of many saints, and by them all he was established as emperor of the Romans. Straight away the holy bishop and pontiff anointed Charles, his excellent son, as king on that same birthday of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also get a very similar account from the Frankish annals, but of course that comes from a more Frankish perspective than a Pope perspective. On the most holy day of Christmas, when the king rose from prayer in front of the shrine of blessed Apostle Peter to take part in Mass, Pope Leo placed a crown on his head, and he was hailed by the Roman people. To the august Charles, crowned by God, the great and peaceful emperor of the Romans, life and victory. After all the acclamations, the Pope addressed him in the manner of the old emperors. The name of Patricius was now abandoned, and he was called Emperor and Augustus. So this is huge, like huge. With one single act, Pope Leo has revived the concept of the empire in the West and placed Charlemagne as its head, anointed by God's representative on Earth. Is this a good idea, though? Well, that is a question we're going to have to tackle for so long. But what's more, in the same act, the Pope has established yet another significant precedent, as now the Pope was the one to bestow the imperial crown, much as the Pope was the one to anoint kings. And he's cemented the protection he so sorely felt that he needed after the attack. This cannot be overstated. This is the first creation of the Holy Roman Emperor and the Holy Roman Empire. This is about to change the face of European history and definitely change the scope of the papacy. Einhard, Charlemagne's biographer slash propaganda master, proclaims that the coronation was an unplanned surprise. Oh no, it just happened on Christmas. Mmm. It was unplanned. Oh. And that if he had caught wind of the Pope's plans to do this, he would not have attended Mass. Mm, no. You've got to attend Mass or you're a bad person. It's Christmas. But he wouldn't because he would have just rejected this title, right? So this is oh. what Einhard says. 
It was then that he received the titles of Emperor and Augustus, to which he had first such an aversion that he declared that he would not have set foot in the church the day that they were conferred, although it was a great feast day if he could have foreseen the design of the Pope. He bore very patiently with the jealousy which the Roman emperors showed upon his assuming these titles, for they took this step very ill, and by dint of frequent embassies and letters in which he addressed them as brothers, he made their haughtiness yield to his magnanimity, a quality in which he was unquestionably much their superior. Even when the East was not happy about it, he was just so magnanimous, they just had to accept it. There is absolutely no way that this is true. Charlemagne had already been anointed as king of the Franks, as had his father, but his ambitions had undeniably exceeded the scope of the title. And what better way to slap God's seal of approval on future expansion and power? Not by becoming a new, never-before-seen power, but by reviving the traditions of one of the most successful empires of the world and identifying as its successor, right? It's a beautiful parallel to the Pope. The Pope is the successors of Peter, and Charlemagne is now the successor of Augustus. I'm already bored. <laughs> it's important. It is. It's really important. And like the emperors and men of such great significance in Rome that had come before him, he also couldn't be seen to be too eager for power, right? So what Einhard has done here is given Charlemagne basically this Mark Antony attempts to crown Julius Caesar as imperator, but Caesar refuses. Again, a super, super tradition of of following these legacies. It's just like, oh no, you can't refuse the Pope when he puts a crown on your head. You must accept. Ugh, vomit. But it's a thing, right? Like, it's very, very important. This is so heavy-handed and gross, and I hate it. Let's move on. It is 100% heavy-handed. Inevitably, this presents some very serious and pertinent problems. Namely, that... The empire isn't gone, at least as far as the East is concerned, right? The, the Byzantine emperor over there considers itself absolutely in all ways the Roman Empire, with hereditary dominion over what used to be the Western half. Even though they're not there anymore, they still definitely believe that that is theirs. But Charles is not in charge. There is now this Western man claiming that he's the emperor usurping half of their rightful holdings and claiming he has divine approval? This is, this is not good. He's cutting their empire in half and declaratively severing Italy's interest from Constantinople at a time where they could effectively do nothing about it. I mean, we could also comment here that this is all happening when there's a woman as emperor in the East, Irene. Oh... Also weirdly sexist. Yeah, entrenched sexism is, is all there that we could talk about. And this is definitely used to Charlemagne's advantage. Even more so when you factor in that Charlemagne even entered negotiations to try and marry Empress Irene. How many people is he going to marry? He's going to try and marry everybody. This one doesn't work out. And unfortunately, Empress Irene is deposed. But in any case... And this widens the divide between the East and West, which is only going to exacerbate the tension temporally and in the church. So it will continue to have some 
far-reaching consequences. And then, in the following year, Rome had an earthquake. Ooh. From the Liber Pontificalis. In the ninth indiction, the menace of our sins brought about a sudden earthquake on the 30th of April. The earthquake shook St. Paul's Church and all the roofing collapsed. Seeing this, the great and distinguished pontiff was greatly afflicted and began to bewail the damage and destruction to the silver and other valuables therein. But by the Lord's will and by the Prince of the Holy Apostles' protection, the pontiff put all his efforts into the task of restoring it as it was of old. With indefatigable industry, he improved it and decorated it with marble of greater value. Here I went back to the trusted source I have used before when we've covered earthquakes, Beyond the Damage Threshold, The Historic Earthquakes of Rome by Paolo Galli. And this certainly was the biggest earthquake that Rome had experienced since 618, totaling a potential 7 MCS on the mercalli Kenny seaberg scale, which is described as very strong, damage negligible in buildings of good design and construction, slight to moderate in well-built ordinary structures, damage of considerable in poorly built or badly designed structures, and some chimneys broken. This is comparable by what we currently use, the Richter scale, as about a 5.9. So it destroyed many buildings of the age, including the roof of St. Peter's and the roof of St. Paul's. And we will see many future restoration efforts as a result of this specific earthquake, particularly in the papacy of Pascal I. But as the Liber Pontificalis suggests, Leo was also very quick to see the churches rebuilt. But that was a digression. Back to Charlemagne and Pope Leo. More earthquakes. These two continued to collaborate, and as with Adrian, this extended into theological matters, not all of which they saw eye to eye about. You see, in 809, Francia held the Council of Aachen, which officially confirmed the adoption of the Philoque, which is that and the sun, into their celebration of Mass, and asked Pope Leo to confirm the determination. Adrian had already defended the omission of the Philoque in Greek and Roman Mass, but hadn't commented on the orthodoxy of the actual Philoque itself. Now, Leo, being put in this position, does confirm the Philoque as dogmatically correct, but he openly rejects any notion that it should be required to be added to the public liturgy or the creed as it was presented in 381 after the First Council of Constantinople. The creed was to remain intact and unchanged. I quote from one of Pope Leo's letters, I give permission for the singing of the creed, but not for the adding, subtracting, or altering of the creed while it is sung. For we do not sing it in Rome, but read the creed, and in reading it we teach. Nor do presume in our reading or teaching to add anything to the creed by insertion. In doing so, right, he thought he would please the Franks by validating that the Philoque was correct, and maintain peace with the East by validating that the omission was fine as well. And, as if that alone didn't make the point he was trying to make, he also commissioned two silver shields with the Nicene Creed, original, sans Philoque, engraved in Greek and in Latin, with the phrase, I, Leo, put these here for the love and protection of Orthodox faith. They're just these, be these big silver... That say two different things. No, it, they both don't have the Philoque in it. Oh, okay. One's in Greek, one is in Latin. 
He puts one in St. Peter's, one in St. Paul's, just so that everybody knows the Pope is okay if you don't say it. Although historian Andrea Sturt in her article, The Silver Shields of Pope Leo, suggests that maybe there were three, two in St. Peter's, one in St. Paul's, but either way, these were a big piece of art that were displayed visibly for a very long time and were seen and described by many pilgrims, but at some point they disappeared, likely in either a, a Muslim raid or the 16th century sack of Rome. They are giant silver shields. Besides this, Leo also coordinated with Charlemagne to suppress adoptionism as the Frankish king moved into Spain and anathematized the bishop of Urgell, which is Catalonia in Spain, Felix, for spreading adoptionist teachings. But Leo also left an imprint on the Church of England. A few years prior, Pope Leo had received a letter from Conewulf, or Kenwulf, or Senwulf, the King of Mercia, complaining about the imbalance caused by the new archbishopric of Lichfield created by Pope Adrian. Adrian had created the diocese into an archbishopric as a means to try and balance the influence between Kent and Mercia, but it seemed that in practice this was causing more of a headache than it was actually being helpful. This letter was followed up shortly by the arrival of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Athelhard, in Rome, who begged the Pope to consider the same thing. So both sides that this was supposed to balance power for are saying, this is not working for us. This is just making things harder. This sucks. Convinced of their cause, Pope Leo issued a papal bull in order to reduce the Archbishopric of Lichfield back to a diocese under the jurisdiction of Canterbury and withdrew the pallium that had been presented to the bishop there. The papal bull was then presented at the Fifth Council of Clovechaux in 803, where it was enacted by the cooperation of God and the apostolic lord, the Pope Leo. But for what it's worth, the now former Archbishop of Lichfield, Hegbert, he had retired to a monastery before the council, so he never was actually demoted in the process. So it, it wrapped up very clean for everybody. The Pope was also a moderating figure in various disputes that have no further information provided to us, aside from the fact that they were between the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, and between the Archbishop of Canterbury and King Conwulf. He also likely intervened to secure the restoration of the King of Northumbria, Erdwulf, because Erdwulf had been deposed in 806, went into exile, including visiting the Pope in Rome. And it seems that he convinced the Pope to support him in some sort of restoration. However, the evidence of this restoration only exists in the Frankish annals, and there's no Northumbrian records that mention this at all, so really can't say any more about it. Now, let's have a look at the East for a second, because his intervention was requested by monks in Constantinople regarding concerns over Theresius, the new patriarch of Constantinople. This was the same patriarch that we dealt with who had participated in the Second Council of Nicaea, but the monks were concerned that he was lax and giving in to the emperor, who's now Constantine VI. And this had to do with the emperor's desire for, what else? A divorce. Oh, no. In late 795, Constantine wanted to marry his mistress, Theodota, and thus he wanted to divorce his wife, Maria of Amnia, on the grounds that she had not provided him an heir. Just 
for the record, this is not legit canonically. There are going to be so many kings, emperors who are going to try this crap. Just because your wife doesn't provide you an heir is not a reason for divorce. And Theresius did not support the divorce or the subsequent marriage and refused to officiate the wedding between the emperor and his mistress. But at the same time, he also didn't openly condemn the emperor or excommunicate him, as his role would require. And this made Theresius extremely unpopular with the monks and much of Constantinople. As it would. He's being kind of soft-spined about it. So the monks are resisting and are openly condemning the emperor's marriage, and as such, they were imprisoned or exiled. And they're now turning to the Pope for support. And Leo responded with high praise and financial support for the monks. But he didn't make any public outcry against the emperor's actions either. It's possible that he intended to do so, but in April of 797, Constantine was blinded and deposed in favor of his mother, Irene, again. Ah, so it was more like, I'm gonna do this. Oh, well, if he's already out, why should I? Exactly. Yeah. Then the newly blinded, deposed emperor died soon after. Problem solved. In Rome, Leo put that substantial wealth that Charlemagne had set to good use, right? He's funding new relief efforts for the poor and rebuilding and renovating churches all over the city. He took up the building efforts we discussed in Pope Adrian's episode and took this to essentially the next level. This is why Leo has the longest Liber Pontificalis entry, because back like when we covered Sylvester, so much of it is just listing the restorations, buildings, decorating, and wealth donations to the church. Over 35 pages and 160 places by name. Of stuff. Yeah. So remember when I said it wasn't really useful? This is all it tells us is who he gave chalices and veils to. (laughs) And of course, he was busy restoring from the earthquake. We're going to skip over all of that. All we're going to say is that most notably, he extended the apse of his titular church, the Santa Susanna. He commissioned a significant mosaic of St. Peter, presenting him with the pallium alongside Charlemagne, while on the other side it has Christ with Pope Sylvester and Emperor Constantine. There's this mosaic he creates that's quite famous, representing him and Charlemagne. The original no longer exists, but there is a replica that was constructed in the Lateran Dining Hall in the 18th century and is now visible at the Triclinium Leonium, so I'm going to show you a picture of that. He also used funds to construct and maintain a fleet of military ships that would protect the Italian coastlines, primarily from Saracen invasion. This is a particularly practical and secular move beyond administrating the city, and definitely represents the shift in emphasis on temporal management. That being said, he likely did it because it was Charlemagne's suggestion, so... It's also likely that Charlemagne suggested that the Pope entrust Corsica, which was a newly won piece of the papal state, into Charlemagne's control as a means of subduing and controlling the Muslim pirates who frequently raided and harassed the island. But it is also unclear how much Charlemagne actually did here, because the island continues to be raided and harassed, and this is definitely something that we're going to have to deal with quite a lot in the next couple episodes. Pirates? Ooh. Muslim pirates. They're going to have a a lot to do. <laughs> now, unfortunately for Leo, having a solid military presence and having taken good care of the city of Rome 
didn't mean that he was entirely out of the woods. Because in 814, when Charlemagne, the Pope's protector, died on January 28th, plots against Leo were suddenly revived. Oh. Let's try to triple gouge and blind this man. Yeah, triple gouge. Quadruple gouge. This time, however, Leo got wind of the conspiracy before he was outright attacked in the street, and he was able to have the conspirators arrested, imprisoned, and executed. Which is, you know, a pretty fair response, considering that someone's already tried to cut out your eyeballs and tongue. You can't count on another miracle. Yeah, exactly. You know, and if we, if we believe the miracle, then someone has already successfully cut out this man's eyes and tongue. So. Yeah, so I can see where he's a little iffy about wandering the streets with people wanting to cut off his facial features. <laughs> Maybe I would pronounce execution as well. Unfortunately, Leo's violent reprisals against those plotting against him sat poorly with the nobility in Italy and even annoyed Louis, who is Charlemagne's son. I mean, they do kind of suck already, so like, cool. They do suck already, but this leads to an open rebellion of nobles who march on Rome. Because, you know, march on Rome. This didn't go very far, though, as they were overpowered by the Duke of Spoleto, inevitably acting on the orders of the King of Italy, who is a man called Bernard. He's Louis's nephew, son of Pepin, who had died, so... So they didn't get very far. Which allowed Pope Leo III to die on June 12th of natural causes. Without being gouged again. He was buried in Old St. Peter's, but like Leo II, in the early 12th century, Leo III's remains were removed and interred in a new marble tomb in the chapel of Madonna Tella Colonna, along with Pope Leo II and IV. They just put all those Leos together. A Leo pile. And then that tomb was remade by Pope Gregory XIII in 1580 in New St. Peter's. And we've already given a description of this tomb in Pope Leo II's episode. So that is Pope Leo III, and now it's time to rate him. I refuse. Okay, well, too bad. <laughs> Papatum infallium. This is a papacy that asks some big questions about papal primacy. First off, he survived an attempted deposition and cleared himself on his own authority. But did he really? because he required the protection of Charlemagne, who had to call the council, preside over the council, and then determine that the Pope should be his own judge. However, we could argue that this was a precedent that was in fact set by a Pope, Pope Symmachus, and Charlemagne's just following papal tradition. Either way, we have to consider that the Pope's oath establishes an important precedent in canon law, making an oath of purgation a legitimate option in canonical trials, so keep that in mind. And now we're going to talk about the stuff you hate, because the coronation of Charlemagne, all this heavy-handed stuff, right? This establishes that the Pope bestows the imperial crown in the West, as he had with the anointed kings. The Pope's blessing is now seen as a prerequisite for legitimacy, sets the Pope at, as a kingmaker and the authority of authorities, right? Pope's doing the confirmations. Instead of getting confirmations. Yeah, yeah. So this is a pretty big deal. I mean, we could argue that it is a short-standing precedent because Charlemagne almost immediately invalidates it by crowning his son as co-emperor without the Pope's participation. But, you know, 
this is something that will, in fact, last beyond Charlemagne. Charlemagne just likes to push boundaries. He sure does. And of course, Charlemagne definitely took the coronation of himself as Holy Roman Emperor as carte blanche. So he definitely, even though this is a big step for what we talk about in terms of the power of the popes, he certainly saw it as, I am now the Holy Roman Emperor. I can still continue to be head of the Frankish church and have rights of intervention. So pushing more boundaries. We also have a letter quoted in Eamon Duffy's book, Saints and Sinners, where Charlemagne outlines his perceived role to Leo. What Charlemagne actually says to the Pope about papal authority. My task, assisted by the divine piety, is everywhere to defend the Church of Christ, abroad by arms against pagan incursions and the devastation of such as to break faith, at home by protecting the Church and the spreading of the Catholic faith. Your task, Holy Father, is to raise your hands to God like Moses, to ensure the victory of our arms. Help thus by your prayers to God, ruler and giver of all, the Christian people may always and everywhere have victory. And in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, resound throughout the world. May your prudence adhere in every respect to what is laid down in the canons and ever follow the rules of the Holy Fathers. Let the sanctity of your life and words be a shining example to all. We have to consider that even though this sets a major precedent that we see in terms of the conception of power, Charlemagne didn't necessarily feel that way. This is an obligation of protection for the Pope as well. There is a lot happening here. There is an awful lot happening. It is very similar to me to what happened with Hadrian, right? Hadrian and the establishment of the Papal States with Charlemagne sets a very similar precedent of this is your obligation to us, and we're going to have a little bit of rivalry about it, but in the process, the Church is gaining a significant amount of power and prestige. So bearing that in mind, we scored Hadrian an 18, a 9 and a 9. Oh, but, oh, ah, <laughs> ah, I hate this so much. I'm going to give him a 7. A 7? Oh my god, really? <laughs> I hate him so much. I just, Why do you hate him? This uh, poor man got his, got his eyes cut out. Yeah, look, I feel bad about that part, but then he was like, I don't know, this whole Holy Roman Emperor business is just rubbing me the wrong way. Okay, if you're giving him a 7, I cannot give him less than a 10. Because, I mean, he establishes the Holy Roman Empire. He revives. What if I give him a 4? You cannot. You've already said a 7. I'm writing it down. It's written in stone. So he's going to get a 17, which is probably going to be one of those upset scores. He should probably get more. But I've given him the full 10 that I can. I'm going to kill that man. You're going to gouge his eyes out again. Fructus prohibitum. He is charged with adultery, simony, and perjury, which are mortal sins. Uh, we have no basis with which to believe that they are true, like you said. Uh, you said these are all lies anyways. And honestly, most of the historians that look at this moment come to the conclusion that it's Leo's common background as a non-noble man that is the actual reason for the attacks against him. He is also characterized a little bit as notoriously harsh in the second conspiracy, right? He jails, exiles, and executes people. But again, I would too. I would too. If I had had my eyes and tongue out, cut out, and I heard that someone was coming back for them, I mean, it's just... I cannot give him any scandal points for that. No, I can't either. No scandal points. No scandal points. 
the only people who seemed to believe that there might be any merit to the charges were the Franks, and that's why they investigated. But even they found nothing, so it's got to be a zero. Secular Rai Impactum. So first off, he is fairly capable at administrating the Papal States, right? He's restoring things, he's rebuilding after the earthquake, he has a, a fleet of ships put in to protect from the Muslim pirates, all of that. But again, the creation of the Holy Roman Empire. He obviously had an excellent relationship with Charlemagne. I didn't include it in here, but in 804, the Pope crossed the Alps to spend Christmas with Charlemagne and his sons. That's dangerous. I mean, it is, but it's a pretty big moment. It's pretty good. He didn't dominate Charlemagne, but that couldn't really be expected at the time with the relationship the way that it was. He supported Charlemagne's expansion, promoted Christian expansion in Europe and the resistance of Muslim incursion. There's a huge influx of wealth just based on his friendship with Charlemagne. So, again, huge. The only real downside here is that this... The creation of the Holy Roman Empire caused some tension with the East. Can I give him an eight, I guess? You can give him an eight. And I think I'm going to give him... Look, the creation of the Empire is going to be a thing for a long time. I think it's got to be a ten. It's got to be a ten from me. So he'll get an 18 in this category. Fossium Sanctus. We have a lot to look at here. Well, I assume if Charlemagne's involved. Yes, absolutely. And not only that, but he becomes a particular focus for art during the papacy of Pope Leo X, Medici Pope, and as such was painted several times by Raphael and the artists of Raphael's workshop in the Apostolic Apartments in the Vatican. So he is certainly, certainly portrayed quite a lot. So we will start with the main one that we will rate him on. Which is this. Oh, he looks like he is done. I feel that it's very generous that they have closed his eyes and put a shadow over his mouth. Maybe this man had a lot of scars. He also has the most aggressive tonsure. Yeah, it's... it is a tonsure. His head on the top looks very, like, like it's swelling a little bit. Like it's a little too big for the tonsure. Mm, yeah, a little bit. You could be right that he's done. I mean, this could be the face he made when he heard that there was more attacks meant on his life. <sighs> How do you feel about it? Let's give him a four. A four? Okay, that's fair. I'm going to give him a five because I feel like it's very run-of-the-mill. He is one of these popes that's definitely going to suffer from us judging on these images because there's quite a lot of him otherwise. So he'll get a nine and a score of 2.25. So let's have a look at some images. This is the Oath of Leo in the Vatican Apartments. This is where he's giving his Oath of Purgation. <laughs> he looks so done with having he to make this oath. He looks very done. Once again done. Kind of looks like Josh from The Magicians. Would rather <laughs> go bake. Would absolutely rather go bake. So there's that. We have the crowning of Charlemagne, also by Raphael, in the Apostolic Apartments. What? There's just like a child grabbing someone's knee. And some other guy's pointing like, that child, that child we will not stop touching. Oh, yeah. He is pointing at him, isn't he? He's like, there there, there are some, some these, these musicians are having a, a brawl in this corner. 
This the guy who's pointing at the child touching knees is like, you are not wearing enough clothing to be around this child who casually gropes people. You must leave. Think of the children. I'm thinking that this child is is Louis the Pious, which is going to be our our next emperor, and because he's grabbing. Is he grabbing a knee or is he holding a crown? I think he's holding a crown. I thought he was grabbing ass at one point there. <laughs> it does. If you look at it from a from a minimized version, it definitely looks like uh, grabbing some ass. But here is another uh, version of the coronation of Charlemagne from a different artist. Joseph Karen painted this one. <laughs> There's a guy just walking forward. He looks like his helmet got shoved too far onto his head and he's lost. Am I in the right direction? There's just a face that doesn't look like it's attached to anything. What face? The one that's kind of next to the guy who's lost and gonna run up the stairs. Oh, there's a body there. The idea of a body is there, but it does just look like a face. So here is another uh, Pope Leo crowning Charlemagne. This one has a much more medieval quality to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This looks very much like that medieval man is getting stabbed in the head. Yes, yes, it's definitely got that vibe to it. Now, this artist, interestingly, also decided to depict the torture of Pope Leo getting blinded. So there's that. Okay, well, I'm sad that it's not just the picture of the guy getting stabbed in the head. That one with the sword in his head definitely has a Thomas Beckett vibe. This definitely has a we're pulling out your tongue and gouging out your eyes. And finally, we're going to look at that recreated mosaic in the Triclinium Leonium. Here is the big version so that you can see the whole thing. So it's quite it's quite big and it's quite beautiful, and you can still go and see this, but um, if you look here at the side, this is St. Peter giving the pallium to Leo, and Charlemagne's there as well. Okay, who's the one man-spreading? Because they're all, like, standing real with their feet closed, and then there's the one who's just like, yeah. Oh, goodness. That's got to be one of the apostles, because those are all the apostles. Maybe it's Peter again. Peter would man-spread. <laughs> Peter would absolutely manspread. Oh, man. I also love that, like, on the side, there are giant men with tiny baby men. Okay, so the giant men are Jesus and Peter. Okay. And then the tiny baby men on the one side with Peter, it's Leo and Charlemagne. And on the other side, it is um, Constantine and Pope Sylvester. Peter's manspreading. <laughs> Peter is manspreading in both of these positions. But then again, you know what? So is Jesus. Jesus is manspreading more. But I feel like having Peter manspread twice means that he's manspreading double the amount Jesus is. I have to say that maybe Jesus manspreading was an artistic choice, but Peter manspreading is is accurate. <laughs> Tempus Pontificus. December 27th, 795 to June 12th of 816. 20 and a half years and a score of 5.125. Very long time. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint. He was canonized in 1669 by Clement X, added in the Roman Martyrology in 1673, and recognized as such for the miracle of the restored eyes and tongue, and he is a feast day of June 12th. But he is not a patron saint of anything. No? No. What would you like to make him a patron saint of? Unfortunate eye injuries. 
<laughs> Unfortunate eye injuries. That's perfect. I mean, you would hope that you would have a miracle as good as the one that restored his eyes because it was pretty total. If they cut them all the way out, it's pretty good. And that brings us to his total score, which is... <laughs> oh, God. It's a 43.375, which puts him a quarter point behind Adrian and in seventh place. And that is because of you. <laughs> I did that. You appointed me Pope Judge. <laughs> well, yes. When people on social media tell us that we are not Pope Judges, we need to remind them that, yes, in fact, we are. And now for the judgiest question that we need to ask, is this man papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact of a papal bull? So, <laughs> let's just give it to him. Okay, <laughs> I was like, am I going to have to fight her on this You're going to yell is... at me. I feel it. I feel it in your voice. I feel it from across the country. Well, I'm glad you know. <laughs> Congratulations, Pope Leo III, on the strength of me yelling for you. The vibrations in the air, they're coming for me. So with that, let's make some thank yous. The number one thank you that we need to make for this episode is, of course, to Dr. Rucker Kramer, who has been helping me so, 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 so much with all of this Carolingians. I hope you feel that we have emphasized how heavy-handed and propagandistic this whole Carolingian myth-making was, because that is your jam. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you to all of our listeners. Goodbye. Bye. Mm -hmm.